Well, thanks for stopping by. Today's show focuses on threat intelligence, kind of the rocket science of cybersecurity. And we've got three guests who help to dissect it into five easy components. Okay, the easy part is very link baity, isn't it? And probably not true. Have a listen and make your own judgment. Welcome to Threat Actions This Week, the show where we look at the latest threats, tech, and actions your organization can take. Today's top security talent share their insights with you. And I'm joined by not only three deep thinkers, but they are hands-on with Threat Intel. They live, eat, sleep, and breathe it. First, I've got Alan Liska. He is the Threat Intelligence Analyst over at Recorded Future. How are you doing today, Alan? Not bad at all. Thanks for having me on, David. Looking forward to the conversation. You're in Washington, D.C. today, correct? That is correct, yes. All right, and I've also got Tim Gallo, and I believe you're way over on the other side of the nation in Eugene, Oregon, and you're the Global Services Intelligence Architect over at FireEye. How are you doing, Tim? Fantastic. It's a great day here in uh, here in Eugene. And from Toronto, Canada, Wadid Mian. He is the director of the Security Operations Center at ISA. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. As you guys know, first we go over to the threat radar and find out what you're seeing right at the center that organizations should be concerned about today. What's top of the news cycle but e-fail? Who wants to chomp on that one first? Alan, what do you think? PGP is insecure. Stop using PGP. There's nothing wrong with PGP. PGP is still very secure. The exploit itself is around information that can be disclosed when you improperly load external elements into an email, which generally I don't recommend doing. It's something that people need to think about. It's not the big, huge exploit that everybody's worried about. I'm worried about more about the new Adobe Acrobat exploits that were announced today that actually allow people to execute code on boxes. That's a, a bigger concern to me than uh, e-fail. A little bit of riding the hype cycle on this one. Tim, what's your take? The hype cycle is strong with the e-fail. What I found is a lot of people are posting out messages, stop using PGP, stop using S-MIME, and that's problematic simply because at the end of the day, so long as you're actually utilizing them appropriately and aren't rendering HTML content, doing actual uh, encrypted email in text only, then you're doing things in the right manner. I think the, the biggest concerns that, that I have is uh, some of the false news that's coming out and, and may push people down the wrong direction. That's a big part of the industry, to be quite honest, is there is some hype cycle associated with threat intel and a lot things like this will get a lot of news play and make a lot of bad suggestions to people. Just because your lock can be picked doesn't mean you shouldn't lock your door. So e-fail is a hashtag fail. What is the center of your radar screen then today, Tim? Uh, right now, the things I'm looking at primarily revolve around the change that we see in the Middle East and the uh, potential long-term effects that that is going to have to business, not only between North America and our partners in the Middle East, but also what that's going to, what types of attacks we're going to see coming out of that uh, as we undergo significant political shifts uh, within that landscape. And so, Wadi, do you want to weigh in on this as well from an ISA perspective? I'm definitely agreeing with Tim and Alan. It, it makes no sense to not use rudimentary controls that are already there just because of some of this hype. In terms of what's on our radar, for us, it's a little bit different. We monitor a lot of our customers' environments and we try to protect them. So the biggest challenges for us are, are the things that are trying to get into 
these environments and they typically stem from the user risk vector. Uh, this includes things like phishing emails. We, we recently had a actually a township uh, locally that uh, an administrative clerk clicked on a phishing email, downloaded ransomware, and their entire environment was flat. So the entire environment got encrypted. I'm sure that Alan and Tim were both nodding in agreement. They've seen this so many times before, and that is really one of the key threat vectors that we look at. It's become the fastest growing vehicle for deploying malware and then ransomware and, and, you know, things like that. So Alan and Tim, I find it difficult to even finish reading a book and you both are writing books. I'm not sure how, how you find the time to do that. But switching gears, the book you co-wrote, Ransomware, Defending Against the Digital, sorry, Defending Against Digital Extortion, O'Reilly publication available on Amazon and in fine bookstores, of course. Can I get you to do a spoiler on that? one? Should I pay or not pay? That's a, actually a complicated question. The security <laughs> guy in both Tim and I, and I'm, I'm speaking for Tim here because we've had this conversation over and over again, says don't pay. Never, ever, ever pay because all you're doing is making it easier for the bad guys to do more research and build better tools. But unfortunately, from a business perspective, sometimes that's the only solution. Local governments, healthcare providers are being heavily targeted by ransomware campaigns because they have a mandate to provide either patient services or constituent services, and they don't want to have those services, and in some cases can't have those services interrupted. So they're oftentimes compelled to pay in order to get services restored as quickly as possible. If you can get your data back up and running quickly, that saves you a whole lot of time versus waiting days or sometimes weeks in order to get backups restored. Of course, paying is never a guarantee that your files will actually be restored, but there is sometimes a business case that that may be the cheapest way to go. It's kind of a, you're going to pay now or you're going to pay later. So it's better for you organizationally, as well as from a legal perspective, to have appropriately invested in things like fast access to backups and build a DR plan or an incident response plan, depending upon which one gets you the better funding from a budgetary perspective. That includes failure due to ransomware or some sort of malicious intent. That in and of itself will put you in a sort of an economically viable position to be able to have the tools necessary to be able to recover. With, without that in place, you, you're, you're going to be in, in danger zone. And if you are in a legal position where you are compelled to provide services, no matter what, you may be put into a position that, quite frankly, I personally find sort of reprehensible in so much as having to pay those guys their extortion. Yeah, completely agree. It just validates the business model and on it goes. So, Alan, you have been writing for years. It looks like since you've been in diapers. DNS security, NTP security, a range of different titles. The one, though, that I really want to zero in on, and it looks like, Tim, you had a hand in this as well, is building an intelligence-led security program. By the way, a fantastic read. There is a great life cycle that we'll walk through today to give you some a framework to think about within your own organization and ways to contextualize and move forward from a threat intel perspective. One of the things that I want to start off with is the motivations for threat intel. So maybe I'm a mid-market company and I'm thinking, well, I've got my firewalls. I've got some good endpoint. In fact, I've got some good next-gen endpoints, so I'm even better. Why why should I be thinking about threat intel? And maybe Wadid, 
you deal with a lot of different companies. What would you say to them? Whether it's our customers or us, I'm a huge advocate of threat intelligence. Our threat landscape is in a constant state of evolution. And we've seen this, you know, from ransomware that came out of nowhere. And now we have hundreds of thousands of variants on the same one uh, versus completely new industries that started close to seven, eight years ago with the black hole crimeware kit. And a lot of this has led to this increased cost in customers or even service providers like us trying to keep up, trying to keep up on, you know, RSS feeds that we're trying to see where a lot of the new vulnerabilities are or exploits as they're being discovered. Threat intelligence takes that to a whole new level. Um, the idea being we learn from each other. It's, it's really the rate at which we're able to identify potential threats. Uh, ideally, for an MSP like us, we're able to identify it before it hits our customers. We look at threat intelligence for victimology, and, and, and we see, do we have any customers that match that victimology? Do We look at IOCs and, and try to understand, do they apply to a lot of our customer base? The idea being we're able to protect them now before anything hits them. Whereas traditionally, without threat intelligence, you're operating in a very reactive fashion, as opposed to a proactive fashion. These two words have been thrown around for a long time since the inception of security. It's being, you know, trying to be proactive versus reactive. Threat intelligence is quite, in my opinion, quite literally one of the most vital pieces to moving to that proactive paradigm. So one of the places I want to go as well is the extent to which I can do it myself as an organization, right? Of course, there's going to be cases where I'm going to want to outsource it to someone like an MSSP or what have you, but there's cases too where maybe I want to do some of this uh, myself. But I think before we get there, Alan, in the first chapter of your book, you say, uh, that threat intel can make the problem of securing the network worse. What did you mean by that? If you don't know what exists in within your organization and you don't properly filter the incoming third-party threat intel, you can wind up running around dealing with more false positives than actual real problems, real security threats inside your network. So I always tell people when they when they reach out to me and say, hey, how do I get started in threat intelligence? You know, I tell them the first thing you need to do before you talk to my company, Tim's company, or any other threat intelligence company is know what you have inside your network. And I think this is a point that you hit on in a, a previous podcast. You need to know what's there, what systems you have both internally and externally, and you need to feel like you have a really strong understanding of what your network, your organization looks like before you can start bringing in other threat intelligence or gathering threat intelligence, whether that's open source, whether that's third-party paid feeds, whatever it is, so that you're bringing in the right type of threat intelligence that can augment what you're already doing inside your network. Makes a lot of sense. And, and Tim, when you're thinking of starting out from a threat intel perspective. So when I think about it from uh, inception, right, if you don't have a threat intelligence organization, the first step, you know, as Alan had mentioned, is understanding what you've got internally. And not just understanding from a technical perspective, the components and the tools that can provide you with internal information about what's happening and the things that are going on within your network and within your information infrastructure, but also understanding your business. Knowing this is a great opportunity for IT security folks to get engaged with the lines of business for the organization that you work at, right? If you know what it is that the business plans look like, both from a, a technical and non-technical perspective, understanding what the expansion routes are, the, the routes to market, who your customers are, and where your operations are, for example, that provides you with sort of a, a little bit more of an esoteric view of the organization. But that esoteric view actually feeds into an understanding of what it is that you have to care about. 
then you're able to, to start at what I would consider an atomic layer and work your way towards a much larger strategic program. I think as you transition from uh, sort of an atomic, almost a tactical or operational program up to strategic, you focus on things that are easy first uh, as you move up the pyramid of pain. So focusing on things like hashes, IP addresses, URLs inside a collective environment where you can search against those things is a good start. I wouldn't call that necessarily threat intelligence, but that's building yourself towards an intelligence-guided network defense program, right? So getting getting those things engaged and finding ways to get that into your tier one operator's hands is a great starting point. And then working your way up into a, a larger program that involves leads engaged in the business as part of a, a long-term program and, and whatnot, I think is sort of your next steps there. Some really good points there. And I want to come back to your point around a strategic program and introduce what Alan put together in terms of the threat intelligence lifecycle and explain that from a cybersecurity standpoint. Before we get there, I want to jump right into the middle of the threat intel conversation. And it's maybe part and parcel of a broader conversation around cybersecurity. And that's the notion of great people versus great technology, maybe a bit of the art versus science debate. If I'm an organization, I've got limited budget. I have to make a decision. Am I going to hire this next analyst? Am I going to buy this great new tool? Where am I going to put that money? Alan, what would you go for? People or technology? So if I have to pick one, yeah. I invest in the technology and training because I think a lot of people, I know we talk about a skill shortage in our industry. You know, yes, there are a lot of jobs that are going filled, et cetera. But I don't think anything that we do is something that you can't take good people and train them to do. So as long as your technology and gives you the data that you need to be effective and includes some path to training so that you can bring in people, get them trained up, get them to be experts, because they need to be not just generic experts in threat intelligence, but more importantly, they need to be experts in your network and your organization. So in some ways, training new people can be more effective if you can mold them to better understand your network, better understand your organization, and better use the technology that gives them the data that they need to be effective at their job. So I broaden the question out to 300 people across North America. Will people or technology best protect our data and computers from cyber criminals? How do you think the population overall weighed in on this? And Tim, I'll go over to you. Do you think that the population in North America thinks it's people or technology that's going to help us win the day? That's an interesting uh, family feud question there. <laughs> My guess is the 300 folks probably answered technology. Technology. Not necessarily my answer, but I'm willing to bet that that was probably the answer. And Wadid, from your perspective, what do you think? I would hope that they said people. Um, and when Alan first started responding to the question, I thought, oh my gosh, I, I think I might actually disagree with him. But as he explained his view, it made perfect sense to me. So we've actually taken this approach. We've hired nothing but geeks. Um, and I wasn't looking for you know guys who had a ton of years of experience who were really good at what they do, because I actually... Uh, Alan brought up a really good point. I, I find that sometimes, depending on the practitioner, they bring a lot of their bad habits with them. And what we found is with the skill shortage, when we hire junior people and we build them and develop them and invest in them quite extensively, uh, we've had some amazing luck. Now, the, the catch here, though, is that we hired a very specific culture. And I, I use this term simply because I identify with it as well. But we've hired basically a bunch of geeks. And it is incredible with the right people and the right training 
what they're capable of. So I'd hope, and I'm sorry for the long-winded answer, but I, I would hope that most of those 300 people said people. Well, for Tim, I'm going to channel my inner Richard Dawson. Survey says 62% people. Uh, 38% technology. So in the United States, it's uh, 62% versus 38%. In Canada, a little bit lower, 57% saying people, 43% saying technology. What's really interesting for me was from a demographics perspective, the older we get, the more that we rely on technology. I thought it'd go the other way. We'd say, I'm going to rely on people as I get older, but no, we say technologies. Now, I promise that we would look at the threat intelligence life cycle. Five phases, Alan. Planning, collection, processing, analysis, and then finally, I've got to disseminate that information. So when you think about planning, and we, we'll talk about these different phases, but when I think about planning and collection and processing to exploit that data, think about analysis, making some predictions, and then finally pushing that data out to different roles in my organization so they can make use of it. Where do you find organizations typically wind up dropping into pitfalls that they need to climb back out of? Honestly, I think it starts at the beginning. So everybody, going back to your technology versus people debate, everybody thinks, okay, I have to have a SIM and I have to send as much stuff to that SIM as possible, or I have to have a threat intelligence platform and I have to send as much stuff to that as possible without any kind of thought given to what do we need? What are we trying to accomplish? So when you skip the first step, the planning, you know, what are we trying to do here? You know, because what we're not trying to do is we're not trying to protect the firewall or we're not trying to protect the network or anything like that. We're trying to protect a certain type of data set. That data set could be plans if I build things or it could be customer data if I'm an Amazon or something like that. You want to build your intelligence program and, frankly, your security program around the assets that you're trying to protect. Because if you understand what those assets are, and, and again, going back to understanding your organization and the role that you play in there, then you can modify your intelligence collection and data collection around that plan. Okay, these are the most important things. What do I need to do in order to protect that? Well, I need to do these things. I need to collect this data. When I have that data, I need to throw threat intelligence on top of that as sort of an overlay. And then I need to produce what kind of reports. I need to show that we're doing what our goals are. So the goals we were given, make sure that you know we're protecting the database or, or whatever those goals are. I need to show with the reports, with the data that I'm disseminating, that we're meeting that goal. Yeah, some great advice there. And Tim, when I'm thinking about all the different places I'm going to collect data from, the people, the, the, the events that are going to be fired off from different devices, some guidance there in terms of how I want to think through collection. Sure. As Alan mentioned, you know, the planning phase, you're going to develop up a series of components. I like to call them intelligence requirements and then build prioritization around those requirements. That leads you to your collections uh, methodology. Things that you're going to want to collect from, a, from an internal perspective that are going to feed into those requirements. So if you know your requirements include the ability to be able to respond effectively to outbound C2 communications through your firewalls and via your proxies, then you're going to want to be able to collect that information. You're going to want to find a way to be able to collect that, normalize it, and put it into a system that you're able to access and query against pretty effectively. But then at that point, once you've developed those PIRs, you also need to determine what am I going to get from the outside? So not only do I need to, need to know what information I'm gathering from the systems that are within my network and within my environment, providing me with instrumentation and support across the entirety of, of the 
network and uh, information systems that I'm protecting, but how do I get an outside view of what's happening, right? So that first set of collections, again, if you're starting at the very beginning, you, you focus on simple things that are easy to integrate, things like, uh, you know, that are low on that pyramid of pain, things like those hashes, IP addresses, URLs, those, those basic IOCs. Understanding what is important to you from the context of that is also the next step. So just getting a list does you no good. Being able to understand, you know, what those items have mean contextually to you is important. So knowing that this hash is associated with a very specific black energy rootkit or, or something along those lines is going to be able to help you better understand what it is that you've detected when you have detected something and determine whether something's a true positive, a false positive, or a benign positive. And being able to, to react appropriately to those things as part of your prioritization. The next steps beyond that, I think, really from a collections perspective, not only revolve around getting those atomic indicators, but then collecting reports into what I like to call a library style approach, where you've taken these more prose style, less machine written data sets and put them into something that you're able to tag and search on. So as your analysts are identifying various components of an alert during their day to day work, they can actually refer back to those things and say, OK, well, this is actually the report associated with this atomic indicator, which is associated with this alert, which is associated with this incident that I've detected within my environment. So, Wadid, what's some guidance that you have for organizations when we go into this next phase, this processing phase from the collection phase of all the different data sources that I'm starting to pull in from? Just to reemphasize some of the stuff that was already said, it is absolutely imperative that you plan for intelligence uh, sources and feeds that you're going to take in because there's a lot of overlaps. So for example, we're huge uh, advocates of the CCIRC feed, um, but it also has a lot of other feeds within it. So similarly, there's also specific feeds that are you know vertical specific for you know the finance groups, for um, the you know manufacturing industry, and, and so on. So planning that is very very important. In addition, you also have to take into account things like the confidence rating for a lot of the different feeds. In terms of the processing, what we do is we use, uh, I guess we also do it a little bit differently. We have our own application that ingests a lot of this, but also in addition to the confidence rating that is used during the planning phase to, for lack of a better term, filter out intelligence feeds that may not be as reliable. Uh, for example, the ones that ended up including the Google DNS servers in them, things like that, uh, which we don't want to happen. But then during the processing phase, we also have our analysis whereby there are weights attached to each IOC as it's being ingested. So there's a lot of threat intelligence platforms out there, um, very useful ones. I would recommend things like Threat Connect, Threat Stream. They're really good at being able to ingest some of this, assign confidence ratings and, and such that's past what was done in the planning phase. Part of the processing, we also include contextualization. So we look at victimology for a lot of the IOCs that are coming in, uh, for a lot of the um, bulletins. We look at the victimology and compare that to our clients. Now, obviously, today, this is a very custom process for us. We have a lot of our analysts who are really good at it, uh, also develop tools that help automate that piece. But I think that's a huge part of it, being able to contextualize what you're seeing in the threat intelligence feeds to your environment and then taking action based on that. Based on the statistical analysis, we also assign weights, which is really, really important because that helps the analysts understand what is the, the statistical weight that's associated with this particular IOC. As an example, when WannaCry uh, first came out in the Eastern European space, we started creating some of these correlation rules. We saw it come through a lot of our threat intelligence feeds. And then we were able to protect our customers based on some of the statistical weight that we were seeing on these threat intelligence feeds. 
But I think Wadid hit on it. Using a threat intelligence platform or a SIM, a Splunk or an Alien Vault uh, Q-Radar to normalize that data makes your life a lot easier. There are other ways to do it. A lot of our customers use like a homegrown uh, ELK solution. But for somebody just getting started, a lot of these platforms already have the capabilities you need, can ingest the data, you know, sort of off the shelf for you. So you don't have to do a whole lot of work for somebody getting started, it's easy to compare endpoint to endpoint. So, you know, here's a domain I found in my proxy logs, and here's a domain that I got from a third-party threat intel feed that says it's bad. I can check that. Now, for some of the more advanced stuff that Tim is talking about, it's a little harder to do that in a sim because they're designed for sort of the one-on-one correlation or one-to-one correlation. But for getting started, it's a great way for people to kind of understand what's going on, you know, get a feel for how it works. If I can steal the show for a second, Wadid, I wanted to ask you a question. You you talked about Google 8.8.8.8 showing up in threat lists. Does your team use whitelisting as well for uh, IPs, domains, other indicators that you want to ignore as part of this process? Uh, not public ones. We we create what are called a whitelist for customer environment. So as we uh, so we do use a sim, obviously. Uh, as we onboard a customer, what we do is we build a profile for that customer that includes their authorized DNSs and and DHCP servers because we have over two hundred and something custom correlation rules that we build based on the tip of that uh, pyramid of pain, right? The TTPs. We look for hacker behavior that includes uh, anomalous behavior, but also sequence-based behavior, you know, things like creating a user account and then deleting it within five minutes. So typically what we do is we create these profiles for that behavior. We say, for example, this group is allowed to make these kinds of changes from this time to this time for the customer environment from these hosts. So anytime we see, for example, a non-IDEM admin outside of the maintenance hours, outside of a, you know, IDEM admin workstation making a change, we flag that. But no, we don't whitelist typically public IPs or anything like that. We tend to put the emphasis on having the right threat intelligence feeds uh, that we have confidence won't have those. So we've gone through planning, collection, and processing. So we've gone through three phases of the threat intelligence lifecycle, Alan. Um, From an analysis perspective and prediction, any quick pieces of advice there that you have for organizations or tools that you tend to lean on? And then we'll uh, go out to uh, Tim and Wadid for that as well. So for the analysis and production, generally, most people either use it, do it in their SIM or they move to a ticketing system or uh, even an incident response platform, something like Resilient. But honestly, I think a ticketing system works very well because it connects into all the different tools that maybe different teams are using. So in other words, your SOC analyst finds something inside the SIM, thinks it may be a problem, uses the SIM to generate a ticket automatically in ServiceNow, Remedy, any of these tools. And then that ticket gets assigned to whoever is responsible because oftentimes the security team is not the same as the desktop team or the server team or the firewall team, et cetera. So they can open the ticket in there and then that ticket can be used by whatever other team needs to handle it. And that system, once it's resolved, the ticket closed in your ticketing system that can also send a note back to the sim to identify it now not all organizations are set up that way but that's one way that that this can be done that, that once you've done your analysis you can then go ahead and actually get the problem resolved in a way that is trackable 
And Tim, what would you add to that? Getting the right people engaged in the incident response and handling process, right? That's part of the planning phase, but that becomes instrumental to interacting with alerts and the output of your various technologies, as well as the correlation that you get from your various external sources. Being able to, to identify who's working on the task, that you have the, the appropriate people involved in task uh, in task management, incident response, whether, you know, whichever devices are engaged and ensuring that communications are uh, occurring up and down the chain associated with those incidents. They don't necessarily, you know, knowing the priority and severity of an incident allows you to understand the urgency and the size of the circles from an involvement perspective, whether you need to get engagement to the executive level or if this is something that's a low-level incident with minimal priority and or severity, it's something that's handled within a different set of circles. So building out those playbooks, I think, is a key component of that as well. So one of the challenges as well from a threat intel perspective is just the different individuals that you may need to communicate the findings that you have out to. So there's going to be a number of different roles, whether it's executive level, whether it's other analysts, whether it's people in other groups within the organization, especially for larger organizations. Wadid, when you're working with organizations, how do you guys help organizations communicate the message out? What I've seen, unfortunately, is that within some organizations, leaders either ignoring or changing what analysts have found. And that's certainly not good. I've seen large institutions downgrade the likelihood of given cyber risks because it was skewing the overall risk metrics within the organization. Now, there's not much you can do from that perspective. If an organization is going to take the advice and either use it or not use it. But from your perspective, are there ways, best practices that you have to communicate the results of the threat intelligence and disseminating that information to other parts of the organization. All our communication is based on risk. So, for example, if there, you know, there's a threat intelligence-based um, notification that we got, the victimology matches a customer, we'll typically do a, a risk assessment. I'll call it a rudimentary risk assessment where we tell the customer, you know, here's the victimology that you match, here's the exploits, here's the lack of compensating controls there today, or here's the compensating controls that you need. And we typically communicate this at the technical level and the leadership at the technical level. The idea being we empower the staff that's tactical, that's in the trenches, but also their leaders who are the more strategic, ideally the more strategic thinkers and can make the decisions that are required for some of the changes that have to happen for, for this risk to be mitigated. Uh, but that's typically how we approach it. If it's a if it's a lower risk, that's a matter of changing a configuration in an existing control. Typically, that goes to the tactical level team. And you know, a lot of times, if we're managing the customer environment, we just tell them, "We're making this change. Um, you know, we're we're proceeding with it to protect you." Uh, generally speaking, we've been fortunate. We haven't had a lot of run-ins where leadership um, lacks the, the the vision and understanding of cybersecurity. Our customers are typically very cooperative and and they're very understanding of, of the risk that we're you know, bringing to the service. One final piece here is that it's supposed to be closed loop, isn't it, Alan, where I get the results and then I feed that back into the front of the life cycle because it's actually a cycle. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. It's supposed to be a closed loop where we want the results of our analysis to generate new questions and generate new requirements. And one of those is to use an old salesperson's trick. So whenever I report things to a customer, I try and put myself in their place and explain my analysis, how taking the recommended action will benefit them, not in 
technical speak, but in, you know, here's what we recommend, here's why we recommend it, and here is the benefit to you. You feel kind of dirty as a technical person wanting to be a salesperson, but there really is a lot of value in that because if you explain everything in a from a technical perspective or in ones and zeros, and you're talking to people who are on the business side of the organization, then they don't either they don't either understand it or they don't see the benefit to what you're recommending. Whereas if you can explain it from a business perspective, then they're more likely to accept it. That again, that'll generate more questions, that'll generate more requirements, and then that starts the cycle all over again. And whether as a cybersecurity pro I'm trying to get budget or I'm trying to explain what the next threat is, being able to communicate in the way that you're describing is important for all of us to be able to uh, to do a much better job at it. As, as individuals and, and as an industry as a whole. Okay, so we've looked at the threat radar and got some great advice there on what you should be looking at and more importantly, in some cases, maybe what you shouldn't be paying too much attention to. We've looked at threat intelligence and worked through the life cycle that Alan wrote about and Tim contributed to as well. Final piece, actions that organizations can take away this week. Mine's really simple. Go read Building an Intelligence-Led Security Program. Would you agree, Alan? Absolutely. And the best parts of the book were definitely contributed by Tim. He's really the best technical editor out there and, and the best co-author somebody could have because he is brilliant. And Alan, do you have an action that organizations can take away this week? Catch your Adobe Acrobat, please. Okay, there you go, Tim. <laughs> Patching Adobe Acrobat. No, uh, the other things that I would that I would think about, not just from a technical perspective. Obviously, there's Patch Tuesday stuff that's out uh, as well. So take a look at the IE bugs because there's a few that are uh, in current exploitation. Other things I would consider is getting to know the folks in your line of business. It's uh, difficult for security people to get engaged uh, outside of. Uh, our little bubble, but that can actually be the most important thing you do this week. Perfect. And Wadid taking us home. I guess the best advice I could give is to never underestimate the just the rate at which the, the landscape's evolving. Protect yourselves in terms of some of the simple stuff. And, and Alan and Tim have already touched on that. But there's a lot of low-level controls that a lot of people miss, and those are the ones that end up getting exploited. WannaCry was a perfect example. Eternal Blue had been out for almost three to four months prior to being exploited. So I guess to jump on the bandwagon that Tim and Alan already started, patch your systems, stay up to date, and yeah, stay protected. And so, Wadid, how can people reach you? The best way to reach me would be through our uh, info at e-isa.com. You can drop a line and uh, my EA will be happy to, to facilitate. And Tim Gallo, FireEye, how do people reach you? Easiest way to reach me is actually on Twitter. I am at Tim J Gallo, G-A-L-L-O on Twitter. Easiest way to get in touch with me. Alan Liska over at Recorded Future. How do people reach you? My Twitter handle is U-U-A-L-L-A-N, U-U-Allen. Feel free to reach out to me on there. Happy to help. And definitely follow Tim on Twitter, if nothing else, for the puns on his name, which are always hilarious. And I forgot to mention that Tim Gallo is going to be presenting at B-Sides in San Diego on June the 9th. Would it be nice to get an autograph from him on his book, Ransomware, Defending Against Digital Extortion? And there you have it. Threat Actions This Week, recorded May the 15th, 2018. We'll see you again next week.